Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Brooke, and this is episode 9 of M is for Murder. I love that the intro is always so happy and upbeat, and then the music is so dark and ominous, but it's a dark and ominous topic for a podcast, so it's got to be fitting. Anyways, I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. If yours looked different this year, um, and it was a much smaller gathering than you're used to, you are not alone. Uh, but it's a great year to kind of reflect and, and be grateful for what we do have. I'm grateful for my family, and it seems like some people that I talk about in today's episode might be grateful for their families as well, but maybe a little too grateful. This week, I is for incest. Warning, this episode will contain discussion of sexual abuse and child abuse, so if it's not the episode for you, that's totally understandable. And for the record, just feel like it needs to be said, my husband is not my brother or my cousin or in general related to me at all. As usual with a topic, let's look a little closer at incest, the definition, stats, etc. All right, so first, incest is derived from the Latin incestuous, incestus, meaning impure. It's defined as human sexual activity between family members or close relatives and typically includes people in consanguinity, which means blood relations. Uh, It sometimes can be between people related by affinity, which is marriage or like step family. So step sibling, brother-in-law, etc. Or adoption or lineage. So again, consanguinity means being descended from the same ancestor. This is like immediate family members and aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews, all of that. Uh, some societies have different ideas about what constitutes illegal or immoral incest as far as second or third degree relatives, but first degree is almost universally forbidden. First degree is a parent or a child. Uh, cousins would be considered fourth degree. So here's a little useless cousin knowledge in case anyone ever asks or you find yourself in love with your cousin, I guess. Um, Cross cousins are cousins with parents who are siblings, but they are of different sex. So the parent of one cousin is a male and then the parent of the other cousin is a female. So they are brother and sister, the parents. Um, And then parallel cousins are cousins with parents who are siblings of the same sex. So the parent of one cousin is a male, the parent of the other cousin is also a male, and so they would be brothers, or same if they were both females, they would be sisters. That's parallel cousins. According to Demographic Research Volume 30, Article 9, the overwhelming majority of cross-cousin marriages appear among Um, the Islamic cultures of North Africa, and those of West and Central Asia. But in Jordan, Yemen, and Palestinian territories, paternal parallel cousin marriage is the preferred form 
of consanguineous marriage. I personally do not see the difference. Feels like cousins are cousins. In the Middle East, though, 50% of marriages are made up of cousin marriages. In South America, East Asia, and Southern Europe, it's only about 9%. And then in Western Europe, North America, and Oceania, it's less than 1% of marriages. So even though it's accepted in some places, incest is still the most widespread of all cultural taboos in both the past and the present. Most states in the United States have laws or social restrictions against incest or incestual marriage. In these illegal situations, uh, some people see it as a victimless crime if it's between two consenting adults, but almost always are children of incest seen as illegitimate. So even if you live in a state where it's legal to marry your cousin, your children will still be judged and looked at differently, even if it's legal. A common justification for prohibiting incest is avoiding inbreeding, which is a collection of just genetic disorders suffered by children of incest. However, as I will talk about later on, um, it's believed that these birth defects are less significant than previously thought. So... Food for thought, we'll get to that later. So, like I said, incest between two consenting adults can be seen as a victimless crime, but that is absolutely not the case with incest between an adult and a person under the age of consent. That's considered to be child abuse and one of the most extreme forms of child abuse at that. It results in serious long-term trauma, especially if it's between a parent and a child which is that first degree that we talked about. Children who go through this trauma can suffer from low self-esteem, difficulties of interpersonal relationships, sexual dysfunction, and in addition are at extremely high risk for mental disorders, including depression, anxiety, substance abuse, PTSD, and many, many more. The National Center for Victims of Crime shows that 46% of all raped children are raped by a family member. That is so messed up. That number should be zero, but even then it's just way, way, way too high. Um, The exact numbers are difficult to estimate, though, because such things are so secretive and not always reported. For a long time, father-daughter incest was the most commonly reported form, and it was the most studied, but more recent research shows that sibling incest is actually the most common, specifically older brothers with younger siblings. Adolescent perpetrators um, of sibling abuse choose younger victims, abuse over a longer time period, and are more likely to use violence. A 2006 study showed that a large portion of adults who experience sibling incest abuse as a child have a distorted view on the act and their experience and see it as, quote, normal. Uh, Sibling incest is most prevalent in families where one or both parents are often unavailable, either emotionally or physically. 
Okay, so the whole reason I picked this topic for the letter I is this headline right here. Quote, West Virginia woman sentenced for murdering boyfriend, then marrying her dad. End quote. If that article title doesn't just lure you in, I don't know what will. So here's the story behind this title. Amanda Michelle Naylor McClure, age 31, was living in Minnesota with her boyfriend, John Thomas McGuire, age 38, in February 2019. Amanda had a sister, Anna, living in North Carolina, and they were both estranged since childhood from their father, Larry, who had been living in Kentucky. Now, Larry had just served 17 years in prison for sexually abusing a young relative who was between the ages of 6 and 12. Now, we don't know who this relative was because they were a minor, but Larry went to prison for this crime on July 22nd, 1998, which unfortunately is my birthday. I love to see my birthday date, July 22nd, in stories, uh, but not, not, in, not in this way. So in June of 2019, Angela Erickson reports John McGuire missing. John, a father of five, shares his three eldest children with Angela. She knew something was wrong when he did not call her or his mom on Mother's Day, as he always did, and even more so when he missed his son Jacob's 16th birthday. The last Angela knew John was going on a road trip with Amanda in February. In September 2019, six months after John and Amanda leave on their road trip, Larry McClure is arrested for failing to register as a sex offender in West Virginia, where he's now living. West Virginia State Trooper K.M. Sadler said, quote, he, Larry, told officers at the McDowell County Holding Facility he wanted to speak with an officer regarding a murder, end quote. Officers go out to the location given to them by Larry, which was the residence he had been living in, in Skygusty, where officers find remains buried on the property. The remains belong to John McGuire. Now, according to Larry, when he was released from prison, he reconnected with his daughters, Amanda and Anna. Larry says that they were both, quote, dope sick, which is slang for having opiate withdrawal symptoms. These symptoms can be an indication of detoxing from painkillers or heroin. And I would just like to add that we will have to take all of this with a grain of salt because this is according to Larry, and he doesn't seem to be the most trustworthy with his background, but it is in the court records. So at this point, Larry begins an incestuous relationship with Amanda. All four, Larry, Amanda, John, and Anna, traveled to Skygusty in McDowell County, where Larry had been living. After just 10 days of all living together, the murder plan is hatched. On Valentine's Day in 2019, John brings home a bottle of wine to presumably share with his girlfriend, Amanda. But instead, again, according to Larry... John is hit over the head with the bottle, tied up, and then injected with liquid methamphetamine. He's tortured for, quote, two to three days of hell before he's strangled and killed. 
Larry recounted, quote, a black garbage bag was wrapped around his head by Amanda. Anna strangled him. I held him, end quote. They buried John's body in a two-foot grave on the property, but six days later, they dug him up, dismembered him, and then reburied him in a different location on the property. Three weeks after this, Amanda and Larry traveled to Tazewell County in Virginia and got married. They were married on March 11th by a Methodist minister. The minister did not know they were father and daughter as they put someone else down as Amanda's biological father. The two sisters were arrested for alleged concealment of a deceased body, but all charges were later upgraded for all involved. Amanda pled guilty to second-degree murder. She suggested that John was killed due to her father's jealousy over her. She said that shortly after John told her father that he loved her and wanted to marry her, that was when John's murder was plotted. Amanda pleaded for forgiveness and painted herself as a victim of her father's abuse. Her sentencing was presided over by Judge Ed Cornish over Skype in October of 2020. Um, John's mom, Karen Smith, also joined in on the Skype sentencing. She said, quote, I just really want to know why she thought she could be God and take my kid, end quote. Judge Cornish did not believe that Amanda was taking responsibility for her actions. Alan Holm, Amanda's adopted father and the one who raised her, said, quote, I want to apologize on our behalf. I can't imagine what she, speaking of John's mom, is going through, end quote. Amanda was sentenced to 40 years in prison, and earlier that year, or this year, in August 2020, Larry pled guilty and was sentenced to life with no mercy for his role in the murder. Anna Marie Chandry, um, age 32, Amanda's sister, is still facing first-degree murder charges. So there's that story. It'll be interesting to see what sentencing Anna ends up with. I wonder if it will be about the same as Amanda or if she'll make some sort of deal and get less or what. So got to keep an eye on that one. All right. Next up, we've got Ryan Wingarden. I got this case from a list called, quote, cases of incest that led to murder. Perfect. On November 23rd, 1987 in Michigan, Newlyweds Rick and Gail Brink were found dead in their home after just 18 short months of marriage by Gail's parents, Isla and Bud. Rick, age 28, was found dead in the driveway in the driver's seat of his Chevy Blazer with two gunshots to the head. Gail, age 22, was found on the waterbed in the bedroom with three gunshots to the head. Right from the start, Gail's older brother, Ryan Wingarden, raised a raised suspicion with his behavior. He even made a weird reference to owning a 22, which was what was used as a murder weapon, but no murder weapon was found and no one was arrested in 1987. So the case goes cold for many years. In 2009, a cold case team was created and they began looking at the Brink case. 
In 2011, detectives Venus Repper and David Blakely began conducting what ended up being over 200 interviews. Ryan's alibi for the night of the murder was that he was doing laundry with his girlfriend Pam, whom he later married. She, now Ryan's wife, was re-interviewed in January of 2013. Pam told detectives that after only three months of dating, Ryan told her that he killed them, Rick and Gail, because he was jealous of Rick's relationship with Gail. He also told her he was scared Gail would tell Rick that she and Ryan had had sexual relations when they were younger. In March 2014, Ryan was arrested for first-degree murder of Rick and Gail Brink. Ryan's ex-girlfriend, Crystal Nykamp Beelan, testified at trial that Ryan had also told her back in 1987 when they dated that he had slept with Gail when they were kids. Ryan testified that it was consensual, but prosecutors said it was molestation. Under oath, Ryan stated that he and Gail had three sexual encounters. The first was when Ryan was 12 and Gail was 9, and the last was when Ryan was 15 and Gail was 12. He said they touched genitals but did not have intercourse and said it was more of a curiosity thing than a sexual thing. But unfortunately, with Gail's passing, we will never know the truth about it. During trial, Ryan rambled on for over an hour about God and his innocence, saying he was framed by the police, and he even called Judge John Holsing a liar. But in May 2014, Ryan was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder after only four hours of deliberation. Obviously, these are both cases where the incest did not work out, to say the least. But that is not always the case. In 2009, Sarah Kershaw wrote an article for the New York Times about incest that did work out. Kimberly Spring Winters, age 29, decided that she wanted to marry the man that she loved, Shane Winters, age 37. The only problem that others would find with this is that Shane is her first cousin. Kimberly, a second grade teacher, barely knew Shane, now a furniture builder, when they were growing up. The two connected when Kimberly was student teaching. Her aunt, now her mother-in-law, suggested that when work ran long and the weather was really bad, Kimberly should stay with Shane, who lived closer to the school than Kimberly did herself. They ended up spending a lot of time together and falling in love. Their wedding was in the summer of 2018 in a small town in Pennsylvania, but they were officially married at Annapolis City Hall in Maryland a month before because marriage between first cousins is illegal in Pennsylvania. According to the National Conference of State Legislators, it's also illegal in 24 other states. Kimberly and Shane, who Kimberly refers to as her husband which does not sit right with me, um, they're now trying for a baby. Their fertility doctor told them he didn't see a problem with them having children. Of course, there's the stereotype of cousins giving birth to cross-eyed, deformed, and mentally disabled children, but this might not actually be the case according to more recent research. So 
The Journal of Genetic Counseling in 2002 said that the risk of serious genetic defects exists, but is rather small. It's only 1.7 to 2.8% higher than in children of unrelated parents who only face a 3 to 4% risk. And interestingly enough, it would be the equivalent risk as those of children who are given birth to by mothers in their 40s. So same amount of risk. Uh, Dr. Diane B. Paul, a professor at University of Massachusetts, Boston, and a research associate at Harvard, wrote a paper published in 2008 that describes how each couple's risk for potential birth defects in their children actually just really depends on the parent's individual genetic makeup. So it's really, really hard to determine what the actual risk is because it's so specific to each individual case. And even though the risk is small, it still represents nearly double of those with unrelated parents. So if we go back to the 3 to 4% risk of children and unrelated parents for genetic defects, that 1.7 to 2.8% higher takes you to 5 to 8%. Am I doing that math right? 3 plus 2 is 5, and if you do 4 plus 3, that's 7. So um, 5 to 7%, which, right, there's a 6 in there. 3 times 2 is 6. <laughs> do You do the math. But anyways, it's nearly double of those with unrelated parents. So Kimberly said that she had a couple reservations before marrying her cousin, which is great. You should have those. One was she was worried people would think she was only marrying him because she couldn't find anyone else. But the other was that it would be wrong in the eyes of her church. Turns out the Methodist church actually has no official position on marriage between cousins. And a relative of Kimberly's, who I guess now is a relative of Shane's as well, is a Baptist minister, and they said that the Bible does not say anything explicitly negative about cousin marriage, only that sexual relations between close relatives is impure, uh, i.e. sisters, stepchildren, grandchildren, aunts, parents, and their children, etc. So, Kimberly and Shane are pretty open about being cousins. They even have a photo of themselves in their home displayed proudly on the wall that says, cousins, the most important thing in life is family on the frame. Eileen Spring, Kimberly's mother, has asked them to take it down because it makes her uncomfortable. She worries about her future grandchildren, not only because diabetes runs in the family and she's worried about how that will affect them, but she's also scared that they will be treated as outcast or ridiculed by other kids. The Winters are lucky to have their family support, even though it might make some of them uncomfortable. Others are not so lucky. Another man who remained anonymous said that he and his wife, his cousin, have no contact with their family. Different family members on both sides refuse to speak to them, and their daughters, who were 13 and 14 and in good health in 2009, had never met their maternal grandmother. That couple hides the fact that they are cousins 
And although their daughters know, they told them not to tell their friends because while they may be close with their friends now, they may grow apart and it might turn around and backfire on them. So it's a secret in their family. So there you have it. Try not to fall in love with your cousin. It will be hard and your children will face judgment and possible birth defects. But if you do, uh, you're apparently not alone. Just make sure you live somewhere where it's legal. All right, that does it for episode nine, the letter I. Thank you so much for listening. If you are wondering if this was a bit strange to write and talk about, uh, it certainly was. Um, A very weird topic, but interesting all the same. So as always, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you like what you hear, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MSForMurderPod or contact me via the website MSForMurder.com. There you can find all the sources used for every episode, plus full episodes and a little bit about me. Um, I'm open to all comments, questions, concerns, suggestions, or if you just want to talk, let's be friends. Um, Don't forget, new episodes drop every Friday. Uh, Next week, the letter J. Have a great weekend, stay safe, and I'll see you on the internet.